Are you happy with your antiperspirant? And if you're already using a natural deodorant, are you happy with it? Rain Organica is now accepting pre-orders for our Sands Vegan All-Natural Deodorant. What makes Sands different from all the other deodorants out there? Well, it doesn't use baking soda and it doesn't use magnesium hydroxide. Oftentimes companies rely on these products or excuse me, on these ingredients for as part of the way that the deodorant protects you from odors. Both baking soda and those hydroxide ingredients raise the pH under your arms. And the problem is that for those of us who are extremely sensitive, we can't tolerate either those hydroxide ingredients or the baking soda ingredients. And that's where SANS comes in. SANS doesn't use any ingredients that alter the pH under your arm. Instead, it relies on three techniques to protect you from odors. And those are using wetness absorbing ingredients such as organic arrowroot powder and organic tapioca starch. Also using antimicrobial botanical oils. Rain Organica likes to avoid coconut oil just for anybody out there with coconut allergies. So instead you'll find argan oil and olive oil. Of course, both of those are organic. They're also naturally antimicrobial. And the third way that SANS helps, helps keep those odors at bay is by using essential oils. And for the deodorant especially, you'll find blends of antimicrobial essential oils. Right now, you can pick up lavender, and this is made with organic Bulgarian lavender, a very true-to-smell lavender. Oftentimes, lavender essential oils can be a bit medicinal, and this one is not. It's It sways much more towards that pure lavender smell. And the second option is a seasonal dirty chai essential oil blend with organic coriander, cypress, litsi cubeba, and capaiba balsam to impart the antimicrobial properties into this essential oil blend. And of course, with it being dirty chai, sweet marjoram, cardamom, and coffee absolute add the final touches to this robust blend. Pre-order your Sands Vegan Deodorant today over at rainorganica.com. Pre-orders are accepted through October 13th and will begin shipping October 20th. And now let's get into today's episode. Welcome to The Alchemy of Things, a podcast diving deep into topics like skincare, holistic living, and the energy that connects us all. I'm your host, Brandi Searcy, founder and formulator of Rain Organica, where you'll find skincare you can take with you anywhere. What exactly are phytoestrogens? 
Technically speaking, phytoestrogens belong to the class of plant molecules known as phytoalexins, which are natural defense molecules made by plants when they're stressed or under attack by microorganisms. The amount of phytoestrogens produced by a plant depends both on its cultivar and also on its growing conditions. Temperature, rainfall, harvest period, and soil fertility all impact the quantity of phytoestrogens that are produced by a plant. These molecules can interact with either of your estrogen receptors, alpha or beta. Phytoestrogens typically mimic the action of estrogen when bound to these receptors when they're bound to these receptors, and they can also alter production of repro uh, the reproductive hormones like progesterone, either increasing or decreasing the production of these hormones. The real takeaway here is that phytoestrogens are naturally occurring endocrine disruptors. So why do these molecules behave like estrogen in your body? As we talked about in the first episode in this series, estrogen receptors are notoriously promiscuous, meaning that a wide variety of naturally occurring compounds like phytoestrogens, plus a whole range of synthetic compounds can also bind to them. And when this happens, the xenoestrogen, which is basically xenoestrogen means anything other than estrogen, but it's still acting like estrogen. And that's regardless of whether it's naturally occurring or synthetic. So that xenoestrogen can mimic estrogen's response with the receptor, or it can also act, or it may also act in an anti-estrogenic way, triggering a different cascade of cellular effects. Why are your estrogen receptors so promiscuous? Well, this is above my pay grade. My belief is that it's one of the ways your body connects with nature's rhythms and one of the ways our bodies are made to interact with the world and with nature. We've spent the past, the past few weeks talking about endocrine disruptors. And if you've listened to those episodes, you've heard me mention more than once my belief that everything in our world, from the foods that we eat, to the drinks that we drink, to the particular light spectrum at any given time of day, all of these things are endocrine disrupting. Even minerals like iodine and magnesium can influence the creation of hormones within your body. So your diet largely impacts your body's ability to make hormones. And yes, these minerals, along with the other nutrients and ingredients in your diet, are also endocrine disrupting. The difference between these naturally occurring endocrine disruptors and the whole slew of synthetic endocrine disruptors is that these compounds have been part of our diets and part of our environment for eons, whereas the host of synthetic endocrine disruptors have only been around for about 100 to 150 years in most cases. The other problem with many synthetic endocrine disruptors is that they're specifically targeting reproductive hormones and or thyroid hormones. They're abundant enough and hazardous enough to our health that they are eliciting real health conditions. The big question today is, do phytoestrogens pose a risk to your health in the same way that these synthetic endocrine disruptors do? We'll build up to that answer, but first, let's talk about exactly 
what are phytoestrogens? Like what class of molecules are these? Have you heard of polyphenols? Phytoestrogens belong to the class of molecules known as polyphenols. And most phytoestrogens can be further divided into two categories under that polyphenol umbrella, either flavonoids or lignans. Sorry, that is a hard word for me to say. Flavonoids are the largest group of plant phenols, and they include over 4,000 compounds. The soy phytoestrogens, genistine, and diazine fall into a subclass of flavonoids, the isoflavonoids, genistine, and yes, I always want to say genistine, so regardless of how you pronounce it, has a binding affinity of about a third of that of estradiol to the estrogen receptor alpha and about one one thousandth the binding affinity of estradiol to estrogen receptor beta. Genistein mimics estradiol in breast, ovarian, endometrial, prostate, vascular, and bone tissue. We talked about receptor binding affinity and hormone mimicry versus antagonism in an earlier episode of this series, so if you missed that one, head back and take a listen. Genistein is also a potent antioxidant and also displays anti-inflammatory and anti-carcinogenic properties. Quercetin and rutin are two other phytoestrogens that belong to the flavonoid family. And both of those compounds are antioxidants and they're also anti-inflammatory. Lignans are yet another group of polyphenols and flaxseed contains some of the highest levels of lignans, specifically secoisolarisoresinol. Cumistins are another class of polyphenols that can exhibit estrogenic activity, specifically the cumistin cumestrol. Clover and soybean sprouts have high levels of cumestrol, and both Brussels sprouts and spinach also contain this phytoestrogen, even though it's in lower amounts. Steel beans are yet another class of molecules that contain some phytoestrogens. Resveratrol is likely the best known still bean in this class of compounds. Um, resveratrol is naturally produced by plants in response to injury. It's also a way to protect from UV light, a way for the plants themselves to protect from UV light. Peanuts, blueberries, and grapes are all sources of resveratrol. So just a quick recap, phytoestrogens may belong to the molecular class flavonoids, lignans, still beans, cumistins, or another class not yet mentioned, the chalcones. But not all flavonoids, lignans, still beans, cumistins, or chalcones display estrogenic activity. Confusing enough? <laughs> Hopefully it just gives you an idea of when you hear some of these other words because I feel like polyphenols and flavonoids, they're, they're pretty common in our day-to-day environment, especially if we if we kind of live this lingo or look at, I, I don't know, I feel like those so often are used when talking about supplements um, and just in kind of common, common language almost. So for that reason, I, I think it's really helpful to know that oftentimes when they're talking about flavonoids or polyphenols, 
they could be talking about phytoestrogens as well because um, phytoestrogens include molecules from those categories. By far, soy contains more phytoestrogens than any other commonly consumed food with reported levels of genistine between 0.27 and 0.84 grams. And this is genistine per gram of dry weight of soy. Levels of datezine in soy are reported between 0.11 and 0.56 grams of datezine per gram of soy by dry weight. So this is after it's dried, of course. Um, the estimated daily intake of isoflavones, sorry, of isoflavones, and again, datezine and genistine both belong to the class of molecules known as isoflavones. So the estimated daily intake of these in the traditional Japanese diet ranges from 15 to 200 milligrams per day. And this results in an average blood level concentration of 744 nanomoles phytoestrogens per liter of blood in an adult Japanese woman. By comparison, infants in America that are fed soy-based formula ingest doses high enough to sustain their plasma concentrations of phytoestrogens at up to 7,000 nanomoles per liter. So that is right at 10 times more than the average in an adult Japanese woman. Breastfed babies, on the other hand, aren't exposed to estrogen through their mother's milk because both estrogen and progesterone production fall after pregnancy and they stay low throughout breastfeeding. The estrogenic activity or binding affinity of genistein and datezine is on the order of 1,000 to 10,000 times lower than estradiol, still with daily exposure levels of 6 to 11 times higher than what's required to be hormonally active in adults. This is noteworthy. And I skipped over that. So a study in Lancet noted that the average daily exposure to phytoestrogens from baby formula is 6 to 11 times higher than a hormonally active dose in adults. There's some research that suggests soy also interferes with thyroid hormones, specifically in infants with congenital hypothyroidism who have diets rich in soy. Specifically, soy seems to exacerbate hypothyroid tendencies and it drives TSH levels higher. A 2018 review of the literature found no clinically significant effects in soy consumption and thyroid function of healthy adults. However, there's still that question of whether or not it's okay for infants to ingest soy formula. Switching from soy to a few other phytoestrogens, let's talk about the, how these naturally occurring compounds can impact your menstrual cycle. I mentioned seed cycling a few episodes ago, and the premise of seed cycling is that you eat one tablespoon of flax seeds and one tablespoon of pumpkin seeds daily for the first half of your cycle, which is basically the day that you start your period until the day that you ovulate. And then you switch to one tablespoon of sesame seeds and one tablespoon of sunflower seeds daily for the second half of your cycle, which is until you start your next period. There are some modifications on this where you would eat either flax seeds or pumpkin seeds 
like one or the other of those for that first week. So the day that you start bleeding for a week and then switch over to pumpkin seeds for that second week up until you start ovulating. And then it would be sesame seeds for the kind of the third week of your cycle and sunflower seeds for the fourth week of your cycle. So there are modifications to this. The premise behind it is it would be flax and pumpkin for the first half, which is from your period, the time you start your period until the day you ovulate, and then sesame and sunflower for the second half. So from the time you, you ovulate until you start your period again. An easy way to remember this, if you're game to try it, is PFF and SSS. So pumpkin, flax in the first half, and sesame, sunflower in the second half. So all the S's go together. Why these particular seeds? Flax seed contains a couple of lignans that are estrogenic. In a study published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism way back in 1993, a group of researchers conducted a study in 18 normally cycling women. Each woman ate her normal diet for three cycles and took her usual dietary supplements. For another three cycles, she incorporated flaxseed into her diet for her full cycle duration. For this particular study, data wasn't collected during the first cycle, either during the control arm, so when she was just doing her normal diet without the flaxseed supplementation, and the data wasn't collected during the first cycle when she was supplementing with flaxseed. And this basically served as a washout period. And this was a, a really well-designed crossover study, in, in my personal opinion. What the researchers found during the second and third cycles when she supplemented with flaxseed was that the luteal phase was significantly longer by just over a day. The researchers also found that no anovulatory cycles occurred when the women supplemented with flaxseed and this compared with three anovulatory cycles during the control months without that flaxseed supplementation. For this study, there weren't any significant differences in estradiol or estrone concentrations throughout her cycle, regardless of whether the woman was supplementing with flaxseed or not during that time. And flaxseed supplementation also had no significant effect on progesterone concentrations during the luteal phase, although the ratios of progesterone to estradiol were significantly higher during the flaxseed supplemented cycle. And flaxseed supplementation also had a slight effect on testosterone levels. Even though testosterone levels weren't significantly higher when the women were supplementing with flaxseed, there was a slight increase in testosterone levels around mid-cycle when our testosterone levels spike naturally. This is an example of how these phytoestrogens work. Despite binding to estrogen receptors, they're impacting your body in very different ways than your endogenous estrogen hormones. There are, well, we're talking about phytoestrogens today, so the ones that have some estrogenic capacity or in some way bind to the estrogen receptors, whether they demonstrate an anti-estrogenic response once they're there or a pro-estrogenic response once they're there. Just know that there are foods that act like natural progesterones also. 
Um, an example of this, of course, the best example of this that comes to mind is yams. There are a number of other foods that also um, mimic progesterone in our body. It just seems like either they're not as abundant as the phytoestrogens or we just don't know about all of them yet. And we're definitely don't talk about them at the same uh, volume as we do the phytoestrogens. We've talked about this before in the series, and it's worth repeating. Again, any, basically any compound that mimics estrogen in your body, it can act in, since we're speaking specifically on estrogen today, I'm using it as an example. Just know you can replace the word estrogen with any other hormone in your body. So the way that the endocrine disruptors work is that, so an, a molecule would can either bind to one of your estrogen receptors so estrogen receptor alpha and beta are the two well-known ones and once it's there it can mimic the effects of estrogen or it can create a different cascade a different communication pathway and basically counter the communication of estrogen. So it can work as an agonist where it's mimicking or an antagonist where it's downregulating the estrogen response within the body. And of course, that's not the only way that endocrine disruptors can work within your body. They don't have to necessarily bind to the hormone receptors. They might also interfere with normal metabolic processes they might alter the normal metabolism of, and since we're talking about estrogen today, of estrogen within your body, they might cause a buildup of estrogen by slowing down the metabolic rates. They might boost the metabolic rate so that estrogen is processed faster in your body. They might alter the your normal pathway of metabolism. So there are multiple metabolic pathways that your body can process estrogen and a particular endocrine disruptor might shift it into one of the alternate pathways. And sometimes this is a really good thing that it's well believed and well shown. There's abundant research basically supporting that the two, the, the two, Oh my, I cannot remember if it's hydroxylated pathway. I believe it's hydroxylated pathway. I just know it's the two pathway is the preferred path for estrogen metabolism in your body. It's associated with, le with lower risk of cancers because there are two other. There's the 16 and also I believe the four. Don't hold me to it on the four, but I believe that's correct. And so estrogen may be metabolized down one of those pathways instead. And generally, those are associated with higher risks of cancer. So this go also goes back to my statement that the foods we eat are so important because many of these foods shift how estrogen is metabolized in your body. And there are supplements that basically pull the... Uh, the active compounds from cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and Brussels sprouts and sell just the supplement that helps estrogen be metabolized down that two pathway. Now, 
I will say before you add any supplements into your diet, research it and be sure that you know what is going on. I myself, having just discovered this particular supplement, have not done sufficient research to be confident myself in taking it. I just wanted to report here. I have done some preliminary research and that is the basis behind it. One of the things that differentiates phytoestrogens from other endocrine or from the entire class of endocrine disrupting molecules is the fact that phytoestrogens actually bind that estrogen receptor. So they don't necessarily that while they okay while they may act along another pathway where they're impacting the hormone balance within your body through some other mechanisms as well the reason that they're labeled phytoestrogens is because they're binding the estrogen receptors in your body and so it's almost like a subclass or a very specific class of endocrine disrupting molecules because they're not quite in that larger class where it's just anything that's altering your hormonal uh, makeup or hormonal homeostasis. Now, since we're talking, since I've mentioned these antagonists a few times, green tea is one of those. While green tea is a phytoestrogen, it generally acts in an an anti-estrogenic way. We're spending an entire episode on tea next with the Tea Spot founder and author of Cancer Hates Tea, Maria Uspensky, and we'll be diving into the benefits of tea more in that episode. I wanted to continue with this duality discussion. So with this fact that green tea, despite it being estrogenic, because it is a phytoestrogen, it generally displays anti-estrogenic effects. So let's let's talk about that. And we're going to use resveratrol as the example for just a minute. Even though resveratrol is a phytoestrogen, it's been found to increase progesterone production and also decrease cortisol production. Resveratrol displays anti-inflammatory properties and is also an incredibly powerful antioxidant because it increases nitric oxide production in your body. And this is one of the hypotheses on why resveratrol is so beneficial for combating non-estrogen-dependent cancer cells. At low doses, resveratrol is cardioprotective. It activates nitric oxide production. It creates a stable redox environment. And this is something else that we haven't talked about on the podcast yet because it's kind of deep and it it requires seeing the world in balance rather than in black and white. In short, here's here's what I'm talking about with that stable redox environment. An antioxidant can become a pro-oxidant once it's oxidized. So once that antioxidant reacts with either a free radical or reactive oxygen species, it can it's in a state where um, it can act as a pro-oxidant. And a stable redox environment is when antioxidants in their oxidized state, and again that happens after they've soaked up the free radical or the reactive oxygen species and are no longer capable of soaking up more free radicals or reactive oxygen species. And now they're in this pro-oxidant state where they're 
the energetic molecule that can actually cause damage. So when these oxidized antioxidants are reduced from their pro-oxidant state back into their active antioxidant state, and there's a good balance between the rate of reduction, and this rate of reduction here is kind of synonymous with antioxidant rejuvenation or antioxidant resurrection. And so when there's a good balance between that rate of reduction and their oxidized state so that the oxidant state or that pro-oxidant form doesn't hang around long enough to cause damage, this is a stable redox environment. Resveratrol promotes a stable redox environment by helping maintain levels of several key antioxidant enzymes that are responsible for resurrecting glutathione in your body. And glutathione, of course, is a naturally occurring, very important antioxidant that's produced naturally within your body. Again, at low doses, resveratrol has been shown to promote a stable redox environment. It also acts as a powerful anti-inflammatory ingredient. It reduces platelet aggregation. It even reduces myocardial infarct size. So like the size of a heart attack or basically the size of the obstruction that causes the heart attack. At higher doses, however, resveratrol depresses cardiac function. It results in an unstable redox environment and it increases myocardial infarct size. Boom, right? Like, what is this? So while resveratrol has been found helpful for outcomes in non-estrogen dependent cancers, it can act as a super agonist in estrogen dependent breast cancers. Resveratrol is also helpful in resolving PCOS and it's demonstrated improvement in women with endometriosis. Resveratrol isn't alone among naturally occurring phytoestrogens in this duality. Despite their estrogenic activity, many studies show that phytoestrogens are beneficial for either preventing cancer or in improving outcomes in those diagnosed with cancer. Why is this? Again, many phytoestrogens display anti-inflammatory properties in addition to the estrogen to their estrogenic properties. And genetics also plays a huge role. And studies often contradict each other based on whether the women or men in the study are of African, Caucasian, or Asian descent. Phytoestrogen concentrations also play a role in whether these compounds promote cancer growth or inhibit cancer growth. So concentration is very important also, as we saw with that resveratrol example. In other words, while a blanket statement can be made regarding synthetic endocrine disruptors like phthalates and PCBs, and we can say with assurance that these chemicals are not beneficial to your health. For phytoestrogens, the answer is much more nuanced and oftentimes individualistic. And this begs the question, why isn't nutrition held in the highest regard for both men and women who have been diagnosed with or who are prone to hormone-dependent cancers? In my own limited experience with people who have overcome cancer, nutrition isn't discussed as part of their therapy and as part of their prevention from recurrence. And yet, 
there's so much scientific interest in this area is witnessed by the large volume of peer-reviewed and published research in this area and also by the ever-growing supplements market. This also highlights something extremely important and extremely uncomfortable for most of us as mere mortals to grasp. Balance is key. Just like the hormones in your body that communicate with each other to upregulate and downregulate production of other hormones in a beautiful symphony, it's important to maintain that same type of balance in your diet. If you're genetically predisposed to a hormone-dependent cancer, it's even more important to research for yourself and your genetic predisposition and your race to make your own informed choice about restricting certain foods from your diet. And yes, this is a tall order. It also feels like the right time to state my disclaimer that I'm not a doctor or qualified medical professional, and I'm not offering therapeutic advice. The information provided in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not in any way substitute for sound medical advice. We've spent so much time over the past few episodes pretty deep in the science of things. And next time we're taking a bit of a reprieve from the science to talk with Maria Uspinski about tea. That conversation is the intro and segue into a wellness series. And the reason for this is because your skin's appearance and your skin's health are tied into your mental and emotional state just as much as they're tied into your physical wellness. I hope you'll enjoy, I hope you'll join me for three great interviews planned for that series. In the meantime, would you take a quick second to share this podcast with a friend? If you're listening on iTunes, it would also mean the world to me if you take a minute to leave a review as well. Thank you so much for your time. Until next time, bye.